You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast for students, graduates, and anyone else interested in ideas. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. Should we just sit here in silence and put it out as a podcast? It's experimental, cutting-edge shit, that is. No, I don't know. I kind of wanted to talk about, like, our idea of philosophy individually. Because it's interesting because you never studied it, and I obviously studied it started this podcast because I studied it for five years. Right. And kind of had this really close relationship with it for about five years. Uh, probably more like seven years. Like, started at sixth form, and I was like, oh, this, is, this shit's really good. I've finally, like, turned on to something. Well, you specialised, I guess, in, you know religion and ethics as opposed to I mean did you do much in aesthetics or as much in you know ontology for example uh, as- well we just touched on everything it was way too broad I think um, although I think that's kind of good I, I, I do think you you should like broadly learn a lot of things quite like the American model of learning where they, they kind of major in things and they, you know they they this more holistic and I, I think it would be I think that's actually the future of philosophy I think philosophy as its own discipline is just dying a slow death in academia, wrapped up in... Because people have this conception of philosophy where it's just like, oh, we're just going to talk about Kant, we're going to talk about Nietzsche, we're going to talk about Plato. That's philosophy. And the, the kind of reader's guides and the introductions. And that was actually something I wanted to touch on today, was kind of the distinction between that and the distinction between a more broad idea of philosophy. Because I was talking the other day to Zach about how philosophy is intertwined um, intrinsically with the idea of sport, how it's um, to compete with somebody is a is a form of self-examination. And, yeah, well, I mean, and, to a greater or lesser extent, it's entwined in everything. Exactly, it's just, it's just, that's a... just one example. Yeah, um, but I think if people had that idea of philosophy, then we probably wouldn't really need to 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 talk about philosophy because I feel like there's always a context when we talk about philosophy. It's this context of Hey, philosophy isn't boring, guys. Let's try and make it more interesting. Or, or philosophy is this really coveted hard thing that you, you need to reload, go read a lot of books and then you'll understand it. But yeah, so, so in one sense, I think that learning very broadly is good. But then, yeah, I think, I think probably my course was a bit too broad. Because you never studied philosophy formally at all, did no, you? not at all. So how did you get into all those ideas and stuff? Partly through you. I think I just got to a stage where... I was becoming interested. I think it was perhaps ethics. It must have been sort of through the ethics side where I think you you hit a point where you're kind of like, oh, hang on a minute. Much of the sort of foundations of what I thought I understood about things and how I saw the world is actually not as grounded in reality as I thought it was, or at least in the sense that I had beliefs or held beliefs about the world and about, you know, the way that people interact with each other and, you know, all these different things and aesthetics and, you know, and knowledge that sort of turned out to have a lot of more caveats and be a lot more sort of debated and contested than I thought. It sounds to me like the, when you're describing that, that you kind of woke up it's like you, yeah, like maybe you were not dogmatic before, but you didn't consider the complexity of everything, all the different ideas, right. which is, yeah, I think that was basically the same for me. Because I, I think everyone goes through this to some degree, like when you're a teenager or whatever, you suddenly realise that adults are just uh, kind of just as scared and like confused as you. And well, just, just as naive about different things. Yeah. It's just the naivety sort of shifts into different areas. 
Yeah, but it's it's like you kind of realize all the things you just take as as read and as granted. You kind of realize, oh, well, these aren't these aren't as foundational as I as I thought. They're 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 more subject to change. And really, I had no idea about that. Like even just take it down to the, the most basic example I can think of is something like when we use the word good in a moral sense. It's like, well, what do we mean when we say that something's a good thing? I don't know. It really, it really struck me actually when I when I realised that these were these were legit questions, and that I hadn't really thought about them before. Because um, I I actually wanted to go study philosophy to to like I thought you couldn't do physics without doing metaphysics first. You couldn't do ethics without doing meta ethics. So I was like, oh shit, we have to go away and answer all these fundamental questions. And you realise that you know you, that's not that's not really what meta ethics and metaphysics does. That's more they're describing things that are all, already exist. It's like you don't really come to to a different idea of ethics through meta-ethics. You just reacquaint yourself with what you already consider is moral and true and good, I think. Right. Or, you, or you explore the foundations of certain areas of ethics. It's the parameterization of it, I guess, in a way. It's sort of like, okay, so what do we consider ethics? What is ethics? And um, organising the different parts of say ethics so we we group them into different ideas we group them into different fields yeah, of philosophies because this is something we probably touched on in the, the the long lost pilot episode that we put up and i did that with the two joes and i remember you listened to it and you said you slightly disagreed with our definition of philosophy you thought it's it's this ordering of thought right because yeah. this is the problem with defining philosophy is depending on who you ask and it's funny because the people who i think the more academic people who do more philosophy tend to define it much more broadly than i would say most people would t- think about it you know if you go on like wikipedia f- for philosophy or something like that it's going to say well philosophy is about asking fundamental questions about reality about ethics about and it will you know go on to list the various branches of philosophy and so it's asking these kinds of questions and about these fundamental and foundational questions mm. but you ask a lot of philosophers and they'd probably say well yeah but it's also kind of like a, a you know way of life or a way of thought or it's like perhaps they're trying to sort of overstretch it to the point where it's like well it's more than just asking questions it's more than just thinking you know at, at which point i tend to go well if, if we want to try to make this a broader definition i think the best you can do if the best you can do is probably go well if we're expanding it to just a formalized way of thinking then the ordering of thoughts is probably the most broad without having to you know totally isolate anyone i I think i agree with you but then i think that that ordering of thought has a social and historical context from which it came right and i think that can't really be ignored so i'd say that this inquiry into the nature of what it means to be human when philosophy began, kind of started under certain conditions. Right. And I, but and I, but yeah. words change, and this is the problem, is what was considered philosophy back then is not, because we use the word now, over time, over hundreds of years, these words change, and what we best suit to fit them, what we're talking about, um, well, that, yeah, is so, so, yeah, much go, more goes important back to- than perhaps saying, well, philosophy as a sort of, you know, as this monolithic thing, as this concept has always been, you know, this we have to have something that is all, you know, it's, it has this perennial... Um, definition that is is consistent throughout every you know we don't have to have that I, we just I, have to have a label that yeah. it works for our current language or understanding so of the I, word yeah so I get that but then I think that I think that's very hard to do in a modern context because I think that we live in an age where it's, it's virtually impossible to start pinning things down because there's such a, a um, multitude of different ways of approaching the subject um, yeah there's too much plurality in, in the way that people 
see something like philosophy. So I, that's why I kind of revert back to the historical definition. Because, I, I, you know, it's something like feminism. It's like, well, how would you pin down what feminism is now? Like, who would you ask? Would you go to feminists? Well, who are the feminists? Like, wh- and which, which branch of feminism are we talking? How, how are we going to conceptualize that? So I think it's, it's much easier to go, well, let's look at Emily Pankhurst. Let's see. And then let's, let's get an essence of feminism from that and kind of maybe use that as an anchor to look at what's all the, the shout factory that's going on right now. The problem with doing that is the, the feminism in the context of what you're talking about would be a historical form of it mm. and sort of movements and certainly, you know, the histor- when the historical social context changes, so does the movement and what it advocates for and how it changes with the environment makes it a different thing in a sense that we're using a label for. But obviously um, the meaning of the word is sort of changing as the movement does in a way like we were doing with the pre-socratics episode when we were talking about um the idea of you know physics or the idea of um you know coming up with naturalistic explanations for the world it's like words philosophy and the words like you know science or whatever are words that don't necessarily really work the further back you get because what we're doing is we're using them in a modern context but but this is the point it's like we don't have to necessarily retroactively um, define a word. And if that means that, say, what people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle were doing way back there wasn't quite the same as we would necessarily define philosophy today, for example. So, you know, philosophy now probably incorporates many different things. We have uh, branches like analytic philosophy, which are, you know, pretty much products of the 20th century. Um, and it's and there's lots of e- these sort of extra bits and extra caveats and like, okay, well, they weren't really thinking about this. So is that, you know, is that still philosophy? Um, but it's like, in a way, what we're trying to do is try to retrofit. Okay, well, we have to make sure that we incorporate all the thinking that has existed for the last few, couple thousand years, and say, and it all has to be consistent with the definition of philosophy. But the problem is, the modern way we necessarily go about talking about these words has its has a new context in the in the time that we're using it. Um, so, for example, most people who've probably have some some degree of experience with philosophy, they're going to have um, a different perspective of what philosophy is or how it should be defined compared to someone who perhaps is like a very specialised in studying the philosophy of like the pre-Socratics, for example, mm, yeah, because their understanding of what philosophy would be, or like they'd have to be incorporating it into what, say, like the pre-Socratics were doing. And what they were doing was very much like a proto-philosophy that had sort of, you know, some of the pieces of what we now recognise to be the broader context of what philosophy is. If that was just the what we call philosophy, then it wouldn't be compatible at all with what, how we're thinking about it in the modern context. You're using, you know, talking about the institutions and things like, sure, we can go, well, let's go look at what Plato, Plato's writing and say, well, he just laid the foundation. So what Plato was doing is philosophy. And then we can, but like, then what you're doing is you're going, well, does that mean that any later developments of philosophy um, yeah, are would, still philosophy? I wouldn't say they're invalid, I, I, but I'd say that if, if you're having trouble pinning down something's essence, I think that gets harder and harder with time, and I think it it's it's certainly useful to go back and see the inception and the genealogy of how the ideas develop. The essence carries through because I mean this is so uh, the practice of philosophy obviously came from Socrates through to uh, Plato and Aristotle, and then kind of got brought in through uh, Christianity and Islam. And you, you can you can actually track that happening. You can see it, and the ideas remain relatively constant and they inform um the whole um continental analytical split that we have now between philosophers even though i mean you could argue that's not really a a legitimate split but whatever 
so if you're like a hardline analytic philosopher you, and you have this kind of reductionist view of the world or you're a romantic continental philosopher, I think there's some essence of Plato and stuff that's going to be the, the things that they started, the conversations they started. I think there's, there's a genealogy. There's a, there's an essence to it. And I don't know if you, you can just, cause I think what's happening now in the discipline is that people are getting a little bit cheesed off that, uh, certain people aren't being included in the discussion. Uh, like I said, I'm tired of just talking about Nietzsche and Kant and stuff. Right. I, I, so I want to. You mean in terms of incorporating them in, with the label philosopher or, you know? Yeah, yeah. So people are kind of. Uh, there's a book that came out recently. Um, ben sent me a, a link to it and I, I sent him like a three page rant because uh, I think it was a book by A.C. Grayling um, and he kind of gives an overview of the Western uh, tradition of philosophy. It's like a whole a comprehensive history of philosophy, and he kind of presents it as having very little gaps. But he only gives like a chapter to Eastern thought and a chapter to African thought. And I think there are very good reasons for doing that. Because I think if, if you just go, oh, philosophy is this global conversation, I think you kind of you kind of miss the essence and the genealogy of certain arguments. I think you you kind of it, it's not really the same to say that, oh, um, what what Socrates was doing is essentially what Confucius was doing. I think there are very good, very good people. Those those examples actually to compare because they're both kind of like these non-religious uh, figures. You could almost um, a lot. I think a lot of humanists have compared them both to Jesus. Is that kind of like the humanist Jesus? And it's like, yeah, I don't agree with that, but it's it's a very interesting idea to throw up. But I don't know this. Because there's this other this book called Whitcraft, which is from a new guy, and Ben sent me this. He's like, "Oh, check out this review of Whitcraft." Because this review of Whitcraft. To clarify, Ben is one of your old philosophy lecturers, right? No, no, no. This is Ben, who's hopefully going to be on this podcast. Ben Ray. It's Ben Ray. Okay, ben so Ray, yeah. the young poet laureate for Herefordshire, Ben Ray, has been telling. Okay, that, just she, to clarify. Should have clarified okay. that. Yeah. Um, he's going to come to stay at my house on Monday. That's great. He's going to come in at three in the morning and wake me up. Fucking hell. Yeah, because he's been gallivanting around Europe. Um, so yeah, uh, he sent me this this thing, and it, it, it's basically a review of this book called Whitcraft, which is looking at all these kind of um, niche people that have never been considered before. Uh, I think one example was a shepherd who kind of made his way into the courts of Europe and was like, you know, having affairs with princesses and things. Um, and it's like, well, that sounds very interesting, but there's, there's probably a reason why he doesn't exist within the, the kind of pantheon of those great philosophers, why we don't study him. Um, and that's not because philosophy is this like elitist thing. I, I, th- I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. I think it's, I think you have to be careful of, we're not fetishizing the same six philosophers. We're not fetishizing the people. There's a reason why there's only six we focus on, or six or seven or eight. It's because they represent a certain idea. They're not. They're, you know, we're not just like going. Oh, these people are incredible. They're amazing. Well, yeah. I think. I think on top of that, you've got to remember that when we're talking about these things from a historical perspective, and I've, I think I've mentioned this before, the pre-Socratics, like we're talking about a great degree of uncertainty about who these people really were. We're relying on 
you know, all sorts of sources, some of them much more reliable, some of them not even primary sources to necessarily describe all these people. Often what we have are written works and, you know, the late, obviously the later things go, the more reliable and the more, the more complete a lot of these sources are. But the genealogy of a lot of these ideas of these people aren't necessarily entirely just like novel thought that entirely came from these people. You know, many, many times you have these almost like movements of thought and, cult, you know, context of thoughts that are coming up at the time, but it's just... It's sort of almost like the individuals that were that were, you know, sort of prime movers of these ideas that were really starting to write down a lot of stuff that become, you know, if you like, associated with a lot of the the thought. And you know, I'm not saying obviously like yeah. you know someone like Descartes or something yeah, like, you know, absolutely. Aristotle didn't have a novel thought. Of yeah, course, of, that's of not course, right, and that, but, that's the point I mean. So, but so if we have there's a great degree of uncertainty, over, and yeah, I think that's absolutely. partly, and you know, partly when we do this idea of like picking out these people throughout history. You know, there is this. There is. There does have to be the slight acknowledgement that what we're doing here is like, if we were to try and to be totally historically accurate, one we couldn't be because it's because the you know the reliability of things goes down and down um, as to what we actually understood about these people, and, you know, and who they actually were. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Just to clarify, so I'm not saying. I kind of want to say that. Descartes, so Descartes is you mentioned. He's a good example of this. So. He obviously we associate him with this idea of the mind body split and Cartesian dualism. Right. Um, he just represents that idea. Yeah. No, philosophers are never saying, and people who study the history of philosophy are never saying, "Oh, Descartes is the first geezer to come up with this." He 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 was the first person to think that your mind is separate from your body. Uh, absolutely not. But he's just this kind of archetype for for these ideas, and I think that goes for all of them. Uh, and and I mean, yeah, these these are interesting people, but. And he, yeah, so 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 I I agree with this guy who's doing this Whitcraft book. I I agree. Well, I mean, to be fair, he wasn't the one bashing uh, Grayling's book. It was um, it was the guy reviewing the two of them together. Kind of. I don't know why he chose to like compare these two books. I don't know. The article kind of annoyed me a little bit because it's like apples and oranges. These are two different things. Like I think you sent me that article and I thought pretty much the same thing. I couldn't tell if this was a comparison or just two separate reviews that he was desperately yeah, trying to cram. Yeah, together it was. It was like it was, it was sort like, of about two different things. It was. I think it was just really a review of Whitcraft. Um, I don't think he was interested at I, all. Yeah, in I think, but I think one. he was obviously calling back to the AC Grayling book because I think that was probably like, well, I've read this AC Grayling book and this is kind of similar, so I'm going to compare it to that. Yeah. Well, I, well whatever. You know, I didn't. Yeah, I don't it, want to slander this article without having with a barely course, read yeah. it. So. Um, yeah, but I, I think that um, there are good reasons why we focus on the same six philosophers, but that's. I mean, that's something for academia to do. And I think there are very good reasons why we do that. But then I, I yeah, I, I agree with this guy in the sense that we need to move away from these guys. So I think we need to we need to recognise what we're doing when we're talking about the the big philosophers. That we're not just because I saw that did you see that Stephen Pinker article? Stephen Pinker's like a, a kind of Yes, yeah, so he was a, he's a psychologist, a yeah. linguist sort of thing, you know, Canadian. Yeah, and he um he dropped this little tweet the other day and he was he was saying like well i don't know why we talk so much about nietzsche because he was a misogynist and i'm like but well we don't talk about him because we think his views on women were great that's it, that's missing the point it, right it's the same thing with like heidegger or someone it's like well just because he was a nazi yeah does, does does that mean that you know his ideas or what he thought can't have any kind of use or like insight into anything or yeah it's like when we that goes to the the whole statue ripping down statues in university right. campuses and yeah. things, uh, which is, I think that, that's kind of blown over 
Uh, but I think there was a last summer or something, there was like a really big um, kind of moral panic about this. And it, people, mostly students, I, I, I think these, these, these articles were kind of overblowing the situation a little bit, but at the same time, it is kind of worrying. But I think it was like a couple of people had statues built of them. And these were like 200 year old guys that I think they were slave owners. And it's like, they were saying, well, we don't want statues of people that were slave owners because they're kind of immoral. And it's like, well, that, they were never really built because we thought these people were paragons of virtue and they would, they would actually stand the test of time. But, you know, we, we, I think probably a good attitude to harbour is that no one's morality will stand the test of time. That it's, it's constantly in flux. We have to keep holding ourselves to the mark and keep uh, like revising what we think is moral. Well, in, in a word, it's historicism. It's the idea that current moral cultural values um, being applied to history and the context in which these people were, you know, brought up in history is 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 a valid way of judging their sort of moral character. When it's yeah. it, it's just a totally different situation, different time, different context. It's kind of like a, a weird form of virtue signaling that just uh, it kind of breeds this weird complacency. It's like, who, how are you? It, it it's like it's like a, a cheat way to think of yourself as like a better person. It's like I'm better than a slave owner for two hundred years ago. And I'm going to prove it by smashing down the statue. It's like, well, yeah. He, if he was, I mean, if he knew what you knew now, he'd probably change his mind and agree with you. Like this is, it's 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 way too uh, anachronistic to, to kind of throw. His, it's like it's like atheists who want to kind of say, oh. um, I'm smarter than everybody that lived in the dark ages. You're not, you know, because, because I don't, because I don't believe in sky fairies and everyone, everybody who lived a thousand years ago was an idiot. It's like, no, that's, that's wrong. Think, think about that for a second. That cannot be true. So, so I, there's something in the way you're, you're judging other people's views that, that you know, it, it's just wrong. It's just not, it's not quite right. So people need a historically sensitive view of the big philosophers, but then I think we need to move away from the big philosophers. And this is why I wanted to get into podcasting, because I think that there's room to develop philosophy. Uh, I, I mean, I, I kind of want to stop even using the word philosophy. And I know that kind of rubs some people in academia up the wrong way. I do totally agree, though. Yeah. yeah. When, they're, when they're sharing their papers and things, it's like, what is this for? Do you know how many papers are, are made and they, they never get read? It's like for philosophy to become relevant again, um, because it is relevant. Well, the people reading philosophy, at least when it comes to contemporary philosophy, are you know it is these like people like Daniel Dennett and people like Sam Harris. I don't want to just name four horsemen people, but you know because um, I haven't really read that much contemporary philosophy to be brutally honest. But it's like often when people are getting into this stuff, it's through. Uh, people who are, who are writing about it from a modern perspective or context. And, you know, sure, like, you can go, well, loads of these ideas aren't, you know, it just harkens back to Aristotle, and they're just re- they're, or they're just regurgitating some, you know, people from the 18th century. It's like, yes, but the, the point is that you, the, the reason why these people are... Um, but are important and you know are part should be part of the discussion as much as anyone else is because the way and the context in which these ideas are brought to people is, is extremely important. But you know, to play devil's advocate to that, it is well, it's it's both Absolutely. a bad thing and a yeah. Well, our 
my lecturer was saying he hates Jordan Peterson because he just regurgitates the 1920s. And I'm like, well, that's not a reason to hate him. You need to tell me what's wrong with the 1920s. Then I'll, then I'll agree with you. Um, and that, you know, you might be wrong. You might be right. Uh, sure. It's well, like anyone else. He's got, you know, he. I mean, he just takes inspiration from a lot of people, particularly people like Carl Jung and whatever. Yeah. And you know, he has some of his ideas are fine. You know, some of his ideas are, I agree with. Some of I, some of them I don't. But it's just like why, why is there this <clears throat> idea that you have to attach the wrongness to his character rather than to like you know particularly what he's talking about? And like why is why is novelty so important? Yeah, it's an- animosity especially, towards yeah, especially when we're talking. Even when we talk about like we've just mentioned the great philosophers, we go we when we go oh yeah Descartes mind body problem. You know, Democritus, a thousand years before Descartes, was already starting on that road with, my, you know, the separation of mind. Yeah. But it's like, you know, these that's, that's ideas... The if you're just going to revere these these six philosophers and then anyone else who tries to regurgitate or, uh, I'd say, not regurgitate, but apply their ideas in a modern setting and take those ideas further, if you're just going to attack those people, it's like, well, what do you want? Because even these six people weren't original. We just say they're original because it's easier to track their ideas. Right. Although, you know, I, I suppose, you know, another asterisk, there are original ideas in there and there are, you know, these people are held up for a reason. You know, people like Kant, for example, had a lot of pretty, you know, yeah. novel ideas. And he was, you know, probably a good extreme example of someone just going like full on autismo on ethics. Well, like, but, I can't understand. Um, I, I mean, I, I kind of want to get into this idea of, I think. It's all well and good us talking about philosophy in this context, but we can only do so much. And I think I don't think we're going to achieve anything really. But the, I, I'm always kind of plagued by this wider problem, especially having grown up um, in an environment which, for some reason, just absolutely hated the idea of philosophy. Like I, I'm not just talking about like family but friends as well. Who would just be like, "It's a waste of time." What, what, what are you? It's just thinking for the sake of thinking. I mean. The, it's not, obviously, we know that, because obviously the people that say that are in effect in, in doing that, engaging in philosophy themselves. And also, like, I mean, philosophy is just entwined in everything. It, it, it's the buzzword. It's this idea of, because I I'd sometimes say at work, like, oh, I, I'm, I do philosophy. I don't like talking about it. But, you know, if they, if they ask, oh, why do you live here? Why do you, I say, oh, I've been here for five years. Oh, what have you been doing for five years? Oh, I've been studying philosophy. And then, yeah, it's kind of either two reactions where it's like, um, oh, I, that sounds really hard. I could never do that. And it's like, I'm not, you're smarter than me. Trust me, I, I'm shit at this. I, 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 you know, I'm really not really good at philosophy at all. I just, I just kind of fell into it. And it's the one thing that I, uh, I really enjoy doing. Um, it, it's just, it's really just circumstance that I've, I've really attached myself to, to these ideas. And I, I think people just generally, they hear the word and they go, oh, that's that. They either say that's too hard or, um, oh, I don't know what that is. It's, it, it sounds pointless. Right. And because, yeah, the other reaction I get is, is kind of like, mm, what can you do with that? What does that get you? I'm sure some somewhat of that uh, mentality I would have probably had when I was much younger, at least like when it came, like before I started getting into philosophy, it's this idea that like, okay, you, you know, most of your experience to philosophy would be like, you go into RE or something at school. They go, if you found a what, you know, they, they use like teleological arguments and yeah. whatever from a quiet. If you found a watch in yeah. the desert. And you're like, well, you know, a lot of these arguments are, you know, I mean, not, you know, I'm not saying it's not important to go back to, you know, Aquinas's various arguments for it, God. It's, 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 it's useful, useful to get students going but that but that isn't yeah. philosophy that's that's but, right. actually a, the philosophy of religion is i guess what we're talking about there so we're talking about proving 
God's existence or God's non-existence? And it's like, that's probably the most banal question happening in philosophy. Right, but not only that, but it's it's not, in, in the current modern context, a lot of those arguments are so sort of antiquated now. Mm, yeah, absolutely. At least in terms of, because they've, they've been responded to and been talked about and been argued over for a long, long time now. And it's like, what, you know, a lot of the more interesting and more cutting I, I get it there's a lot of complexity with a lot of the more contemporary philosophy but it's at the same time i think i think that that being the the modern exposure for most kids to philosophy isn't right and i think you know the same thing with um you know the greek philosophers and things it's like okay now i've you know now i'm kind of interested in philosophy i can sort of go back and appreciate much of that but i still kind of you know i still kind of look back at that and i, I can see why 16 year old me went yeah but they thought like everything was made out of four elements why should i care about like reading about because i just we we just know that's not the case now yeah, and, yeah well, like, and obviously there's a historical context to that but that is a different interest to have about those about these philosophers and there's 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 history and there's philosophy and there's the history of ideas in a sense um and you know all these things and, and you know going back to the point about academics and and sort of revering these philosophers i think i think a lot of what happens is to know or have read um some of the primary sources for a lot of these uh, you know a lot of these very standout philosophers is almost becomes this sort of seal of approval or badge of i understand this concept or idea in ethics because i've you know and to a certain extent i think that's kind of true i think if you've studied or like scrutinized the sort of origin or one of the primary sources of uh, some of the people who brought a lot of these concepts and idea, it's almost like, you know, a sort of academic way of going, you know, I, I, I can prove to you that I'm smart and that I know mm. what I'm talking about. And to a certain extent, that kind of makes sense because it's it's easier to go, yes, I've read this and I understand this and these antiquated philosophers, blah, blah, so blah, and I understand we, the history. But... How do you think we should uh, teach people philosophy what, what should be the entry point right so this is so this is the million dollar question isn't it and this is what um the problem is because it's like on one hand we have these thinkers who sort of represent historically in the history of ideas and philosophy things that were very important and sort of you know in a way are important to put in a historical context and how these ideas influence things and also studying them kind of gives you the proper genealogy and the proper the proper foundation of what these ideas actually are whereas if you sort of sever the idea from the thinker, it doesn't always necessarily place it as well, I think, in philosophy. Which yeah, is part and, of the and that's where close reading comes in as well. Right. And a lot of those technical skills, which I, I think are useful to learn, but then I think, yeah, you, the, obviously you'll agree there's the danger of just, of just close reading Nietzsche all your life. It's oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. And then on the other side of things, we've got this problem now where what we're sort of doing is we're going, well, hey, in order to have to understand anything about um about this particular idea in philosophy or this particular area of philosophy we have to do this like you know quite painful history lesson at first and go through yeah. all this stuff and all this fluff you know and you know like i said you know the other people argue where you have to do that to properly understand the other but at the same time what we're talking about here at the moment is more the educational aspect of it the fact you know we're, we're talking we're getting people into philosophy getting them in it and i think it goes broader than that like, and i'd love to hear what sam thinks sam's joined us for loads of podcasts he's a teacher which is surprising <laughs> but, believe it or not but um it yeah it's this idea of well how do you get people interested in learning essentially because I, I kind of wanted to rebrand this podcast a few times now um largely for reasons i've mentioned about this philosophy just being this buzzword that turns people off but philosophy is also the um it's kind of the uh the big example of this because it's the the one subject I think which is just done for its own sake. Um, it's not the only subject, but it, I think it's it's 
it can be held up there as kind of a, a big shiny example of, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess just like a, a subject that it doesn't necessarily have utility. It, it's because I kind of wanted to combine ideas about history, culture, and just discuss ideas in general. Um, because I think I, and I, but I think philosophy is just up there as, as being the on top of all of that stuff. And I think it always kind of has been just by the very nature of what it is, because it's, it's talking about disseminating between ideas and, and, and what, how do we decide which ideas have value and which ones don't. So, yeah, it, it, but it, I, I don't know. I think maybe part of why people are turned off from it is because it's this big challenge. It's this, it's the, the, it's asking you to think for yourself. Right. And I would say one of the big reasons and I'm sort of getting to the sort of my ideas about why this is a problem and how we can start addressing this problem is I think honestly it's relevance to modern context. And I think this is a a problem that is sort of has spread through many areas of of school subjects and whatever where we have especially in music and I you know I suppose the only thing I can probably talk about with authority is music <coughs> tuition and that sort of thing um since that's my background. But um, especially in that, you have this problem where the examples that are being used and the way it's being taught is so removed from a modern context. And I get it. That's where like a lot of these, these that's, that's the genealogy of the ideas. That's where it's like a lot of these ideas. You know, you want to learn. Bart Corrales teach you a, yeah. a simple thing about you know your, about your chord patterns and your ones and your fives and your cadences, etc., and how to harmonize. But the problem is, you can do that with modern pop music. It's harder for the teacher because you're gonna the teacher's gonna have to go. Oh well, hang on a minute. I got I I did the same thing like 400 years ago when I went to university and I just learned this boring stuff in a textbook. And now I, oh no, I have to actually think and go through this pop song and mm. write out the chords and talk about the cadences and that. But that is how you're going to get that relevant to the students. It's by analysing the sort of modern context of where music is and incorporating something that's actually relevant to young people into the subject in order to get them interested, then you can sneak in the history. You can sneak in the other stuff so in the think, back door. You know, right? You think it's a, um, a back door idea? Yeah, because I've always thought about it as no, no, no. You you spend just a while just just throwing ideas at, at, at people and just saying, right, here's what's interesting. Isn't it interesting to learn? Then you can teach them anything. But yeah, I, I guess the backdoor thing works as well. I, right. I mean, but I, I mean, the, the example of that in philosophy would be something equivalent to cr- having a, a modern context argument or something where you're you're making it relevant to the people. You're talking about an idea first, and you're talking about the, you know, not the history, not necessarily the genealogy until later on. And it's like the that sort of, and I understand sometimes maybe that's not always the best thing. Not everyone learns the same way. That's also the case. Some people do like to have this, I you know, have the person and the history and the context, and that helps them remember. And I I totally understand that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think I think what's turning a lot of people off is the complete and utter removal from our modern environment and the things that yeah. are actually important to us. What what a lot of people are thinking about a lot now. See, this is difficult because I I'm somebody who wants to go and get a PhD. And there are certain institutions that probably wouldn't like this conversation we're having right now. Um, you know, someone like Zizek, who's uh, a philosopher that's kind of funny. Um, I still think like the average Joe wouldn't... <laughs> You're just thinking of his list, aren't you? <laughs> I just, I was just, I was, yeah, I was, I, was, I was interpreting funny in a slightly different, no, slightly no, more no. offensive way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. yeah, he's got a good sense of humour. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's a bit of a lad. Um, and he's, I think he's quite an engaging, vibrant uh, figure within philosophy. But the problem is, most people just hate him in the, in the philosophical community. And I think 
uh, he, he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because most people on the street, if you kind of, even if you simplify one of Zizek's ideas, they'd be like, well, I don't, this isn't relevant to my life. I don't care. But I think part of that is because people aren't com- contemplative and introspective. They don't want to think and, 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 and I don't blame them. I don't, I don't want to do it. I've just been stuck doing it. But like, I don't want to sit thinking about the big questions all the time. I mean, I do, but um, I understand why it's, why it's hard and pe- people have pressing real concerns at the moment. I think philosophy in that way is kind of a luxury, actually. You, you can understand why it not, isn't necessarily something people are interested in. It's like, as in, like for us, it's an interest, right? It's something that we enjoy doing. We enjoy I, I, thinking I, I about think it goes a bit further, further Not than everyone that. has to enjoy these things, you know? I'm not sure. I, with philosophy, I think there is a, an importance to do it. I think that a society without philosophy, and by philosophy, I, I, in this sense, I'm talking about just the ability to, 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 I mean, it, it sounds critically patron- analyze your yeah, thoughts. Yeah, it sounds patronizing because I'm right. basically saying people should think more. But I mean, I really do mean that, and I, I think philosophy is the. And I don't mean I don't mean philosophy in a university. I don't mean academic philosophy, but I do mean philosophy in a more colloquial sense. I think that people should bring ideas to their life and, and discuss ideas like this. They don't have to podcast. They don't have to. They don't have to, even have to read. They but. Talking about ideas, what kind of person am I? What kind of person do I want to be? These these very fundamental questions, I think, are just really important. But I get why the vast majority of people just don't want to do that. They got bills because it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to hold your beliefs up to the light and and really scrutinise what yeah, you not, think. And not only that, but I think they have bills to pay and stuff as well. It's like you're not going to be. I, I think in one sense it, it 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 should bring philosophy to the fore even more when you're in a situation of struggle. But I still think you kind of need a baseline to be able to do that with. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's 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 that idea, isn't it? It's uh... yeah. No, that's no, I totally agree. And I think this, you know, and I think this is relevant to um, sort of the other thing that we kind of wanted to discuss, which was this idea that there is a lot of, especially nowadays, there's a lot of this sort of split between philosophy and science, and this idea that they are in somehow in some sense, incompatible with each other or like a different, you know, are, are just like, not, yeah, well, you have to be a scientist or a philosopher or you, or you, you know, or one is irrelevant and one isn't. And it's just like, and I, I totally think this is a problem with both philosophers and academic philosophers, as well as many scientists. And it is a problem that pervades both, both fields. Yeah. So, so I used to run a humanist group. Um, and I think I've mentioned this in a lot of podcasts and going to, we're going to be, I'm going to be talking a lot more about that. Um, very soon, but um, there was this guy. You, you, you think you were there? That when the guy said the guy, yeah, oh the guy. Uh, yeah, Could you yeah. give me a little bit, bit more, bit more of a prompt as to what? So there was a guy. So when, where, how, who? The guy that said the whole philosophy versus science thing. We should stage a debate about philosophy versus science. And my reply to him was. Genuinely, don't know what you mean. It, it's like saying, "Let's yeah, that doesn't make sense. let's yeah. let's stage a, a textiles versus geology debate." So, <laughs> I in what? Well, it's even worse than that in a sense because I would consider science, or the scientific method, is a subset of a, of of a subset of. Now, philosophy. I said this in an essay once, and my my lecturer was like, "I'd be very careful about saying that," and I I I, w- I was never really convinced by the reasons he gave why you shouldn't call science a, sub, a subset of philosophy. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I suppose like subset is probably a 
in, in a way, it's a bit aggressive, but it's, it's, it's an kind o- of it's true. It's an offshoot. It, because, well, if you think about it, it's like, so how, you know, if you're going to do any degree of thinking about why the scientific method works and is good, you're doing epistemology. Like, you're just, you just, ha- you just fall into doing philosophy. You can't scrutinise the foundations of why you believe that logical empiricism works without doing philosophy. It's impossible. So it's like, in a way, it is the subset because you end up doing philosophy if you're really going down to the basis of of these ideas. I think there is a problem with uh, scientism or uh, like a, v- a very aggressive form of naturalism, which I saw a lot of in the humanist group. And I think this is what this guy kind of represented for me, where people believe in science's objective truth. And despite the language they use about evidence and uh, kind of it, it, the ability to, to um, admit when you're wrong, to the reality you believe in that's that's the crux of science something I'd, I'd agree with definitely but i feel like language isn't quite enough because i i feel like you know you can call a fork a spoon but it's not so i, I feel like a lot of these people were using the like i think nietzsche actually says this he says um how far are we in the podcast 45 minutes 45 minutes and i've dropped nietzsche in <laughs> but um I think he basically says a lot of these uh, atheists that were rising around at the time he was writing, he kind of says, well, these guys kind of hide behind the language of objectivity, but in, in fact, their, their views are quite zealous. And um, it's, it, it, you know, it doesn't really matter what they say. The attitude they have towards certain ideas is uh, kind of dogmatic. And I, I think that you say that um, scientists are using philosophy. Most are. Some aren't. I'd say. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think most most are in the sense that, well, if like I said, you have to if if you start scrutinising the foundations of what you're doing, then yes, you are doing philosophy in some sense. Yeah. But I mean, I I, I I probably came across as a bit too harsh then because I, I I mean I'm I'm more talking about people that like science but really don't know much about it. They're, they're like armchair scientists i don't think any real scientists have that opinion that's that, that's the problem i think some do and i think that's why this is because i think both in academic philosophy we have this problem where there's such a sort of removal from this idea oh i don't i don't need to know about anything in science because i'm a philosopher and i'm beyond that which i just think is this horribly arrogant uh, idea that you I, don't I've, need to enrich yeah, your understanding and I, of the I, world. i've seen a lot of um, that yeah, and but on the other side, yes, I think there actually are there are plenty. Of, you know, I, I know that um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for an example, of someone who's actually a big public speaker. He's, you know, he's a, he's a proper, um, I believe, astrophysicist or cosmologist. Got a good mustache as well. Yeah, a fantastic mustache. But he has. I don't know if he sort of dropped a bit of that now. But he, yeah, he did have a very sort of almost antagonistic attitude towards philosophy or this idea that you know, science, 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 and did what, he? what is this silly philosophy stuff? Yeah, he. Um, um, and I, th- I think there are other, particularly with some of the scientists who are sort of the public speaky type, you know, who bring maybe you know maybe slightly sort of pop sciencey people. Yeah. But that's pro- those are probably the people who are most important, at least when it comes to communicating this. You know that actually all these things are important and intertwined and unnecessary. And I think those are the people that should be most responsible, not for. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've never really seen it from people like Bill Nye or Brian Cox, but I mean, obviously Richard Dawkins is probably an example of what we're talking about. Um, although you know, I've got a bit of a soft spot for Richard Dawkins because uh, I think he brought a lot to the conversation in, ter- in terms of um, just really reminding the public since the Enlightenment what empiricism is, you know, why we value evidence. I think he, the way he targeted religion was a complete mis- misunderstanding of religion and that, that uh, the role mm. of 
language in that conversation. I think he, he kind of misunderstood what he was doing there and bit off a, a philosophically bit off a bit more than he could And I think chew. in many ways he was part of a movement. And I think that yeah. movement, so to speak, which in this context was new atheism, was which, kind of which was, was, was more of a reactionary, more of a sort of um, anti-religious movement, and a more of a sort of you know, in, in a way, sort of not particularly willing to sort of stop and try to attack necessarily the philosophical foundations of what they're doing. Um, I think in, it, I think it rose to prominence in the context of the time with the the, the September 11 attacks and stuff. I, I right. think I think it was. And the, I think the Charlie Hebdo stuff after. I think I think I think that was the real context of new atheism, and I, I think that's why it's died down now. Yeah. Um, it's, and I think the cultural zeitgeist has started shifting, and in a way, it's it's like the conversation, the style of conversations we need to have now are not the same that that we were having back then. But you know, whether or not those conversations and those books, like the God Delusion and God Isn't Great, and all these you know sort of classic new atheism. Yeah, well, I, I see. I don't. Um, I don't agree books, with the, with whether the God they Delusion. Were, I don't. I don't like the God delusion at all. Um, but I think it's yeah. just this wonderfully um, relevant book at the time. In, ter- exactly, in terms yeah. of giving an idea, it's, and it's like it's, it's like you have to have. Uh, say if you're a, a, I don't really agree with political wings, but let's say you're left wing, or you're a socialist. I think you have to be talking to conservatives, um, and even ultra conservatives. I think I think you need their voice present in the conversation. And I think it's like if you're talking about uh, reforming society, you have to do things like uh, referendums and polls, and you have to you have to bring some of these vo- voices that you might find ugly to the forefront. Yeah, I think like um, homophobes, you know, with the whole uh, gay marriage debate. I think their voices need to be out there so that you can scrutinise them. Yeah, so yeah, you, and, and, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't I don't have that critical a view of the God delusion. Um, Necessarily, I think I think his intentions were, were fine. If if you think that religion is always um, a, a, a scientific proposition, which it never is, really, unless you're a creationist or some kind of mental person, but it, it, it you know it, it's it's never there to challenge science as it as a, an alternative to science, really. It, I I think he he kind of. Made the language and the debates very regressive. It's a bit of a straw man, in, yeah. a, in a way. And, and I think he, one of the, my other criticisms is that he he gave us this idea of a debate as being something you win. Um, but I, I think that was just a lot of anger and resentment at the time, and I, I think it was a voice that we needed. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. It's like the cultural context. It's like, and this is part of the problem with, and you you know you mentioned politics, and I think this this pervades through politics as well, where you have a problem where if an issue wants to be addressed in the culture, what tends to get the biggest movement in terms of how to move the culture is the massive overreaction to because yeah. that's how you get people into it and get people, and that's and that's an un, really unfortunate thing. But people only get sort of riled up and go, oh yeah, this needs to be changed if if you if there's this massively exaggerated account of a particular thing, and I think that is the case with what, a lot what happens with new atheism where it's like yes it, it it made waves and it changed things and there were many ways in which it it it, it helped to um you know create more a more secular environment in many ways um but at the same time it's like you know having analyzed it in a modern context like yes there were there were many problems with what was going on in terms of how much of an overreaction it might have been but then again is that a bit of, is that a bit of historicism are we sort of going well back you know and this is not very long ago this is like 20 30 years but is the is the context the time was was it necessary to have those kind of very loud almost quite aggressive um 
sort of anti-religious sort of things yeah, re- in order to get that message out mm. and in order to get people riled up to make those cultural changes. I really think it was. Um, when you consider things like blasphemy laws, it's like, I think it's time we... I mean, he didn't do much for atheism. I think he, he set atheism as an idea or uh, atheists. I think he gave them a bad rap, really. Um, I was watching... So I think it was the Cleveland show, do you know, animated... Uh, it's a spin-off of Family Guy. Yeah, is it? spin-off of Family Guy. I haven't Guy. seen it, but uh, it's it's alright. And uh, I, it was late one night. I was watching that, and it and one of the characters is like, I'm having a bit of a God crisis, and uh, his dad says, "You're not an atheist, are you?" He says, "Oh no, 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 no." I, you know, there was a guy who was atheist who came into school the other day, and he he was horrible. No, I just don't know. And uh, his dad goes, "Oh, um, well, you know, that's normal." It's fine. I'm like, sorry. What was that? What was that shit about atheists? You just what? What was? What is your idea of an atheist? Do you mean an anti-theist? Like, well, what's this? What's this kind of creeping into my animated? Like, I don't know. And I, I think maybe I don't know what that was. It was just really strange. It's like they seem to have this picture. I mean, it's just an animated comedy or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's just this weird idea. That an atheist is somebody who stands the flag in the ground and says no, no no you're you're talking shit it's militant atheists yeah militant. Right. but i i mean I, I never really got the it's funny i was talking to one of the lib dem counselors at like this posh hotel because we were doing like a humanist event and he, he came along and was like oh we need this guy he's like uh he's like um you know high profile kind of guy we can sort of use him and you know he's 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 into his his humanism and his atheism and stuff and he came in and he was like I hate religion, uh, militant atheism. We, you know, I'm a very militant atheist. He just kept saying he's a militant yeah. this oh, and a militant man. that. I was like, how can you? And then yeah, t- two of us kind of went up to him. And we were like, um, how can you be a militant atheist? Isn't atheism just the negation of a thing, not really a thing in itself? So how can you be militantly not something? There's and it was like five seconds of staring blankly at each other, and he goes, "It was a joke." I was like, okay, was it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, that's some that's some politics right yeah, there. You yeah, can yeah. tell he's a politician. Immediately 180s on that. Oh, it's a joke, guys. <laughs> nah, he's a really funny guy. I, I think I think it might have been a joke, but um, yeah, I don't. I, and I kind of, I kind of, I think there's some there's some uh, value in 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 adopting this term of being a militant atheist because I think it gives it a little bit of vibrancy and a little bit of. But it's, yeah, I mean, I think Richard Dawkins did bad things for atheism on the whole. Um, but yeah, he he pushed the conversation forward, which is right. which well, is it's difficult to say. I think I think over time he became more and more like, oh come on, just calm down now, you know. These people but, are deluded. Yeah, I, I get annoyed with people who either say, "Oh, Dawkins is an idiot, and I hate him, and he's a terrible person." She's like, no, he's like he was a, a brilliant biologist, to be pretty frank, and and so he's you know I think the Ancestors' Tale is still probably my favourite biology book. Um, and you know he he was contributed the ideas of the extended phenotype and things like this to evolutionary biology, which are, which are really important and interesting ideas. It was kind of this sort of you know um, like I said the sort of anti theistic um, thing, which was perhaps you know and I think riled a lot of feathers. And um, I don't think necessarily, especially in the in the context now, that it is the right approach anymore. But well, I, I think it was just wrong. I think it, he, he was his. His misgivings were misdirected. I, I think he he had a straw man idea of religion. Um, I, I think his his contribution is is probably more relevant than ever when it comes to things like alternative medicine, 
and pseudoscience. Homeopathy and things like this, mm. yeah. Yeah, I, I, because they actually do use the scientific method to push their claims. Flat Earth, the conspiracy theories, all these things. I think that's where... Yeah, pseudoscience, I, I, yeah, that's you can't really straw man that if you're saying, if you're attacking that with science, because the whole point is it's supposed to be like a science. So obviously, yeah, mm. exactly. That's not a straw man at all. Yeah, it, it's, it's an entirely legitimate view. He's just using science to uh, attack science that's wrong intellectually and i i think yeah that's that's fine but then he, he kind of lumps in religious claims with pseudoscience and it's like well it's not pseudoscience it's religion it's its own separate thing and it it that i mean if what you're saying is true think about it religion would have been dislodged hundreds of years ago right. speaking of which have you seen so there's um richard dawkins and uh brett weinstein um have a do a sort of on stage talk about this literally this sort of thing. The idea of the extended phenotype, if you know what a phenotype is, the expression of a gene. So you have black hair, for example, that is the phenotype of your hair. That's, like, that's how the genes have expressed themselves. What Dawkins sort of came up with is the idea that a phenotype doesn't necessarily have to stop at the physical features of the creature. If some, if, if some manifestation of its behaviour is so essential to the genes of the organism that it is essentially a phenotypic part of the animal. And this is called the extended phenotype. So an example would be the dam of a beaver is so inseparable from the beaver because it's it's encoded in its genes for it to create this dam and it can't really, yeah, and they, they don't really exist without. And the same with termites and termite mounds. Like the termites always make a termite mound or they don't, or they're not being termites. They just don't, they don't work. So yeah. it's like, it's almost, so the termite mound is, is an expression of the genes as much as say like your hair color is an expression of the genes. And this is um, like this extended phenotype idea um, as you can sort of, you know, maybe starts to get an idea for it as an extension to behavior yeah. is can also in some sense be reflected in human behavior and like some aspects to our cultural behaviors and our society and our social like you know exactly where the line of is this this is a direct expression of our genes obviously that's a incredibly difficult and um contentious area to talk about yeah, what yeah. is an expression of our genes in terms of our behavior what's environment and genes etc and it's it can be all over the place and i think a lot of the the crux of this debate between brett weinstein and uh, and richard dawkins was this idea that like so what if religion is part of the extended phenotype, or is it is like a like because mm. it's religion seems to be always seems to be around and has survived for such a long time. And it's like if you look at this from a purely evolutionary biological lens, it's like why is this still around if it has if it has no use? Yeah, or he, is, he doesn't is have a, an answer for it, does he? He completely went eighties. We just go no, I, I yes. stand by my mind virus thing. But it's like well, you know, he thinks it's like a virus, like as in it's like literally just something that developed and it's just stayed there for, which, for which no think, reason which i think which is, is such a provocative i mean he, but it's, he it's knows strange. he knows the rhetoric he's using he knows that's provocative he knows right. that's i mean there's a there's an opening for a documentary he does he's looking at the people at, at lords at the at doing a pilgrimage and it just opens with these people are deluded <laughs> they all believe in the same delusion and they're wrong it's just like it, it, it's literally that almost word for word and it's like mate what how this isn't going to work like who's this for is this for atheists then it's just an echo chamber right. and that's that's going to have a negative effect because it's just going to make atheists more complacent and more angry uh, is it for religious well, not people? Only that, but it's not. It's not one. It's not going to actually convert any religious people. And it, and what you're trying to do with a lot of these things, and I think this is important. You're not trying to change the minds of devout religious people. You're not trying to change the minds of the devout atheists, so to speak, or the militant atheists. What you're trying to do is those people who are sort of thinking about it and on the verge want to hear some good arguments or hear hear some like logical reasons for why your particular viewpoint might be the more 
realistic one. And I th- I just I think that that approach is just simply not the way to people who are open minded or on the bench about these things are not going to be convinced if your argument is these people are deluded, you know. And and also yeah. this and the same thing with like that debate where it's like, well, sure, you want maybe maybe religion isn't part of the extended phenotype. Like we're going out on a, li- a bit of a limb here, but it's like we, it, you know, it, as a concept, it could make sense. So what are your arguments against it being a potential manifestation of our genes in some sense? And if it is a potential manifestation of our genes, it must be sort of Darwinian in some sense. It must be an artifact that has actually survived for a reason. It must have some kind of use. And I'm not saying that it actually, and you know, a good argument against that. And I think it's a better argument to have if you're arguing against this idea of religion being an extended phenotype is to go, well, but our modern context and our modern society is so is so different now. And the way in which social behaviours and the way societies arrange themselves are much more individualistic and much more and very different now. It's like, well, you know, does this our evolutionary history for most of our human development really apply anymore to these genes that are left? And you know, and that's probably a better and more reasoned argument. You can go down that line, but it's like instead he just goes, "No, I stick. It's just a virus, and it's just some, it's just something. It's just like a spandrel or something. You know, you know, uh, a spandrel is like a thing in your genes that's kind of like necessary. He doesn't even argue that. He just literally says, "Well, no. it's just a yeah, it's just some bad thing that just happens to be there and survive for no reason." Um, which can you know which can happen like you know you can you could you have we have all sorts of leftover sort of junk genes that, that aren't ne- you know are just sort of from our primordial lives we still have like glands from fish and things that don't really have any purpose or you know and, and much of evolution is just this blind kind of appendix. um yeah and things like the appendix which just gets infected but it just it clearly hasn't been infected enough to stop people enough people from you know passing on genes or there hasn't been enough of a mutation that gets rid of the appendix and that hasn't had enough of an advantage at some point for the appendix to disappear in our do you know why giraffes have those little horns no why i don't i didn't know i, I was asking you no, you no. seem like you're knowledgeable on giraffes no i don't they got those little ear horns all right. I, I mean, there's lots of reasons why random animals can have horns. I mean, I mean, I know male giraffes do fight and do um, do contest each other. So perhaps you know it is is just another part of that. Perhaps it is like you know it is that sort of evolutionary leftover thing where I'm sure the horns are are literally you know still around because males do fight and contest and things like this. So like any other species, you kind of got these little horns that help them headbutt people, which is you know fine. Mm-hmm.